Hi there, Duke fans, and welcome to, I have no idea what episode it is. 165. Episode number 165. I should do my homework in advance. I should plan these things before I start. Episode 165 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Yes, there is actually some basketball news to talk about, but before we get to that, let's do introductions. I am, as always, in Atlanta, Georgia, Jason Evans. I will be hosting this fine, fun fest this week. Joining me out of Durham, North Carolina is Sam Klein. Sam, how you doing? I am okay. I am a little tired. It was grad student camp out this weekend, which you might be aware of if you follow Duke men's basketball anywhere on social media. So we will we will get to my grad student camp out experience in the parting shots. But um, I am I am very tired right now. I, I would describe Sam, my... what you just what you just did is known as a deep tease. You tease something a long way away. I like it. I've I like actually... it. That's good programming. I've actually worked part-time in media for the last five years, so um, I am vaguely familiar with uh, industry terminology, but thank you for the additional lecture. Absolutely, absolutely. And also joining us, as always, out of Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Donald Wine. Donald, what's going on in your life right now? Uh, well, there's been a lot of travel, and there'll be some travel coming up, uh, a deep tease for later on as well. That's called a callback, Jason. Nice. Yeah, it's been fun. And uh, I am tired this morning. Or it's not even this morning. It's it's almost five o'clock uh, and I'm still tired. But I didn't actually do a camp out like Sam did. So uh, I think I'm just getting older. You know, I should tell folks, it's kind of weird. We may be off our game or more on our game. I'm not sure, but um, the uh, the application that we're using to do this week's podcast includes, for the first time, a video option. Now, we could have done video in the past, but uh, we, we've always just done, you know, phones and computers and that kind of thing. But so now we have, so we're looking at each other <laughs> as we're doing this, and we're just like staring at each other's faces very uh, I confused. I think Donald's making faces at me. This is not easy. I'm trying to keep it together, guys, because there is news that we need to talk about. The basketball schedule has dropped. We knew about the non-conference games, but now we know about the conference games. ACC on a 20-game schedule this year, so everyone is playing a lot, lot more games than they have in the past. Hey, Sam, let me let me go to you first. Give me your take. What do you see from the schedule? If you if you want, start with Duke, and then at some point we could also maybe get into you know some other teams. Sure. So on the Duke front, I am pleasantly surprised actually at how Duke didn't get so many of these tough like stretches this year where there are weird turnarounds or like excessive amount of time spent on the road. So taking a look at the ACC at, at Duke's ACC schedule, um, they've only got two of those dreaded. Uh, 48 hour or fewer turnarounds um, from they're both Saturday night to Monday night games, or they're both Saturday to Monday night games, which means that they're not actually going to be less than 48 hours. They'll be, you know, at, at worst, you know, uh, approximately 48 hours, but there won't be any of these, um, of these, like there might, there's not going to be like a Thursday evening, Saturday afternoon, none of those. There's Saturday, two Saturday to Mondays. Both of them are, road games going to home games, again, making it a little bit easier, whereby Duke is not traveling 
um, on the road during one of these quick turnarounds. Both times they're coming home, and one of and and they're both not long trips. Um, one is the Saturday, weirdly Saturday UNC game in the middle of the season. They're playing in Chapel Hill, and then they're home against Florida State. And obviously, when Duke goes to Chapel Hill, it's not like they even have to stay overnight. Um, in on either end of the trip and then also the trip to UVA on a Saturday night where they'll return home uh, and play NC State on a Monday night. So that NC State game um, and maybe that FSU game both maybe feel a little bit trappy, um, but being able to, to come home and play in front of the home crowd is going to be good for Duke. And I double checked uh, the that NC State game, which is towards the end of the season. It's Duke's got UVA on a Saturday night, then NC State on a Monday night at home and then finish the season at home against Carolina. That NC State game is still during when school is in session, so it's not like we're going to be randomly missing a bunch of the students for that pivotal end of season um, uh, home game against uh, a rival that somehow seems to to beat Duke much more often than they should. So, on on that front, um, Duke doesn't really suffer all that much. Otherwise, in the schedule, not that many um, stretches where they're on the road a lot. There's only one stretch of games where they're on the road three times in a row. The last of which is that UNC game. So again, Duke is you know, mostly home when they play UNC, they just happen to drive down the road to Chapel Hill to play the game. Um, so it's not like Duke is going through these these crazy long stretches of being on the road in weird places. There's one trip, it looks like, where they probably stay up north. They're at Boston College and at Syracuse on uh, consecutive road games. So that's probably the only time when Duke spends a lot of time on the road for the most part. Um, the the road games are, are pretty well split up with the home games. Um, there's one stretch where I think Duke plays three home games in a row in Durham. Um, and then obviously the other weird thing that, that is now a, a function, Jason, as you mentioned, of that 20-game ACC schedule is that Duke has to play um, one really early game. So they are uh, in East Lansing to play Michigan State in the ACC Big Ten Challenge game. Oh, my goodness, how much hype. Is there going to be around that with Michigan State being preseason number one? That's in early December on a on a Tuesday evening. Um, Friday night, Duke is at Virginia Tech uh, right after that. So that might be one of the ones where Duke's having a little bit of a hangover. Obviously, it's in the middle of a week, but um, that Virginia Tech game is the is the last game they have before they go on exam break. So they get a two-week break after that, which means they can be really focused and locked in for it. They have to play that game, obviously, very early in the schedule. They get the Virginia Tech and then the long break and then two more non-conference games before resuming conference play on New Year's Eve. Um, but I'm not I'm not feeling like this schedule looks so bad in terms of getting trapped in places. I haven't looked, admittedly, at the rest of the ACC and and how tough it is on them. But Duke's favorite Duke's schedule seems to break out pretty favorably this season, at least in my sort of initial estimation. Yeah, and, and what I would say about that is there are three teams outside of Duke who in the ACC who I expect to be, you know, potential Final Four, certainly Sweet 16 caliber teams. That's UNC, that's Louisville, and that's Virginia. And I looked at the schedule and I immediately went, okay, is there going to be a murderer's row? Is there going to be, are, are we going to face, you know, like these three teams in a row at some point or two of them, you know, back to back or something like that, two of them on the road, back to back or whatever it may be. And it turns out that they are all spaced out. They are always, whenever we face them, there tend to be some easier games surrounding it. I think it it sets up really, really nicely for us. Uh, you, you mentioned, Sam, that stretch, um, uh, Syracuse and BC on the road. Um, the, the first four days of February, and then UNC on the road, although it's really back home. I'm going to be very interested in seeing, I actually think that Duke may stay up in the Northeast. 
that Syracuse on February 1st is a Saturday and then Boston College on February 4th is a Tuesday. I don't know if if I'm Duke, I don't know that I'm going to fly up. Oh yeah, that was th- yeah. that's what I was expecting. I would think that they would that that they'll stick around in the Northeast that that weekend, especially yeah, since yeah. they're playing at Boston College on Saturday night, which means that um Saturday and or Sunday, they I don't know what the Celtics schedule looks like, but I imagine they'll get some time at the Celtics facility, given the Celtics deep ties to Duke with with Steve Paliuka being the, um, Friend of the, being the owner of the Celtics. Friend of the podcast. Of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And and also, more, more importantly, for the purposes of Duke's season, um, the, the the owner of the Celtics. So yes. uh, has court Fa- time. And father of former players. So that's right. That's right. Big, big Duke guy, Steve Paliuka. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I identified. I sort of feel like that stretch there, um, the the Syracuse and BC games up north, UNC, and then Florida State just a couple of days later. To me, that's the most difficult part of the of the schedule. Um, uh, UNC, obviously, everyone says is a top ten team. I think Syracuse and Florida State are probably, you know fringe top 25 certainly have the kind of talent on their roster, the sort of history that could indicate they could rise up and be, and be a really good, really good team. So to me, that's the toughest stretch of the schedule, but boy, compared to past years for me to say Syracuse, BC, UNC, and Florida state is the toughest stretch on this schedule. That's a lot easier, (laughs) a lot easier than what we've seen in the past. The only thing about the schedule, and it's not a surprise. We knew this. The only thing about it that I sort of lament is that we're at Virginia um, we don't get them back home, and I, I kind of think Virginia may be really good again, maybe better than some people expect. And I think it's unfortunate that um, you know our one matchup with them, if if we are battling them for the top, um, our one matchup with them being at Virginia puts us at a little disadvantage in that game. Donald, it is your turn. Give me some schedule thoughts. Yeah. So I think the first thing I looked at was I, I went through and, and and tried to see, including the exhibition games, when we actually play, because like like you guys have talked about, Sam uh, alluded to the fact that we usually have at least two or three of these Saturday, Monday turnarounds. And those two Saturday, Monday turnarounds are the only two Monday games we have on the schedule. We have 10 games on Tuesdays, which it sounds like the ACC with this new expanded schedule has t- is, is starting to take over Tuesdays because that is when uh, the bulk of our games are during the week. Normally, in previous years, we used to have games on Wednesdays and Thursdays. We only have three on Wednesday and two on Thursday uh, this entire season. We also have seven, uh, 11 Saturday games. So that means is, A, we've taken over Tuesday, and B, we're going to be on uh, that Saturday, uh, you know, probably primetime slot far more often than not because, I mean, generally when that when we put that game on a Saturday – that's the game that ESPN likes to circle as, as a nice prime time uh, tilt. So expect to see, because uh, I think, I don't know if you talked about this, Sam, but I think it's rare that they have released an entire schedule that doesn't have any times on it. Uh, and, and so I think when it comes to that, when they start setting the actual times for some of these games, expect Duke on those Saturday games to be more in the later time slots because they're going to want to put these guys on national TV as many times as possible to kind of lead into their, uh, Saturday night coverage. So does the uh, does the Saturday night does that hold up on on Saturdays as much as it does on the weekdays? I feel like sometimes these networks will try to have a premier afternoon game, like the way that Major League Baseball will have one or two prime games on Saturday afternoons, and then mm-hmm. most of the schedule on Saturday night. Um, I, I say I haven't paid much attention to it, sort of nationally. I know that Duke has their schedule kind of move around on Saturdays. Like sometimes we'll get a Saturday noon or two o'clock game mm-hmm. um so i guess we'll, we'll wait and see and, and, and all right so we don't know we don't really know what this whole 
uh, ACC network effect is going to have on on Duke scheduling or or other you know premier program scheduling as far as mm-hmm. afternoon Saturdays versus evening Saturdays. Yeah, I think the I, I think you're right. The the addition of the ACC network and having that additional 24 hours of of programming for them to do is going to be interesting to see what they do with those time slots. But I think when it comes to uh, the bigger games, like, of course, you know, I I think you alluded to that. I don't know the last time we've had UNC, both of those games be on a Saturday. Uh, Usually they have one on a Wednesday or Thursday and then one on a, on a Saturday. Uh, What do you think? What do you think that's about? I mean, it it was a couple of years ago. I, I feel like forever it was Duke plays UNC on a Wednesday in Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. in like the yeah. middle of February, mm-hmm. then a couple of years ago, it moved to Thursday, which, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whichever sort of All midweek night doesn't matter this, this year, they moved it to Saturday and I didn't see, uh, I'm sure that, that one of the, um, both the games are 7 PM start, both the games will be 7 PM starts. They've well, I was going to say, I, I, which member of the, um, which member of the esteemed DBR community went back to figure out when the last time. Duke and UNC's two games were both on Saturdays were. I don't know if anyone did that research yet, but it's not in my limited lifespan as a Duke fan. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious as to what went into that decision. I, I would think that the weeknight games are able to attract more eyeballs than the weekend games, but maybe I'm just off on that. Well, I think I think there's two things. One, you're, when it comes to the weekend games or the weekday games, uh, that was always the high, most highly rated broadcast of the season. Uh, for Is the first game. Was the first game, yeah, and it was always in February. Well, or the second one. I mean, of, yeah, no, no, no. I think the second game is sometimes just as highly it's, rated. It's up there. It's up there, but usually the first game is the most highly watched game. It's also the first one of the season, right? The first one. It's a and it's always sort of strategically placed right after the Super Bowl. So it's like, hey, sports fans, if you have not been watching college basketball yet. It is now it's rivalry week right now, yeah. and the highlight of rivalry week is you know, mm-hmm. you know maybe Michigan State is playing Michigan or um, no, Kentucky no. is Kentucky is playing whichever SEC Who team cares? happens to be good this year. Right. None, of those, none of those games everything matter. Else. Nah, it's, nah. it's Duke and Carolina are are like the the premier matchup, and it is perfectly timed for anyone who hasn't been watching college basketball. But yet. that also reverberates around college basketball. Putting this game on a Saturday for to me screams that college game day didn't want to just go to one or the other uh, this season. They want to do both. And what that also does is it means that all the other leagues are not going to try and put their big-time matchups for their conference on that night. So that's a Saturday gone for them where they can you know, highlight their league and, and promote their brand. They have to take, they have to take a backseat to Duke UNC on two Saturdays, which for college basketball is prime real estate. But those other programs could be saying, you know, if, if the Duke-Carolina game, I guess is at 7 p.m. on that, on that first, mm-hmm. they're both at seven p.m. I think um, they're both seven, yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, I don't, I don't know who, who some of these other big programs are playing on those Saturdays, but they could have a noon game or a two o'clock or a four o'clock mm-hmm. to to lead into the Duke game. Lead into it. Um, yeah. To to be, you know, sort of all day primetime programming. It's not like when it's not like when uh, Alabama plays um, Auburn that they can't have any other big games on that day in football. Um, mm-hmm. You just have to plan around it. Right. So two other things I've got on the schedule really quick, and then we're going to move on to other topics. The first one is uh, I was a little intrigued that they did not choose to put one of the Duke UNC games on this new ACC network because it may be before your times. You guys may not remember this, but many, many, many years ago when ESPN launched ESPN2, one of the ways they launched ESPN2 was they put a Duke UNC game on ESPN2. I remember that. 
it was a, it was a huge deal and it put mm-hmm. tremendous pressure on cable carriers across the country to pick up ESPN2 because sports fans wanted to this is the biggest college basketball game of the regular season sports fans wanted to see it and and there are a lot of people who say that it helped make ESPN2 it caused people to to look and find ESPN2 on their dial because back then it was like you know, it was a crazy number. You couldn't even find it. It wasn't like it was right. It's next so to quaint. Again. It's so quaint to think that people couldn't find a television channel. Yeah, I know. It was it it was old. You know, weird stuff back then. But I thought they might, and I still actually think they may do some kind of you know home team or uh, you know you know the home broadcast or, or they'll figure something out. I bet they'll they'll do something very special on the ACC network for They did that for the first football game uh for Miami Florida. They had uh you know they had uh Mark Richt and John Beeson um doing like kind of a play-by-play and analysis kind of like they do for the final four. Um yeah. uh they did that on the ACC network. So I would expect the ACC network to, like you said to have some sort of related coverage or maybe even a simulcast with just ACC broadcasters or something like that. Didn't Miami fire Mark Richt? No, he quit. Oh, he quit. I was going to say that'd be that'd be a weird way to pump up the conference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So wait. So the other thing I wanted to mention, just really quickly, folks, if you have only been paying attention to Duke, there's a really interesting wrinkle um, in the new ACC schedule, which is that everyone not named Duke, Duke plays Kansas in the Champions Classic. You know, we have the Champions Classic that is the biggest thing. Everyone else in the conference. Every single other team, they open their season. Very first game on November 5th and November 6th is a conference game. And I, I was just like, I, I, I think I'd sort of heard that this might happen. I hadn't thought that much about it. I mean, wow, what a way. You, you don't get to start with your cupcake. You don't get to start with a, even a non-conference game. You're immediately launching into the ACC season in your very first game of the of the year. And I think it's going to create some really interesting stuff. Uh, there's some great matchups. Virginia's playing at Syracuse. Notre Dame's playing at North Carolina. Um, and Louisville's at Miami. Those are sort of the, the big team. Those are the best matchups that I see. Uh, the fact that, that Virginia and Louisville, two of the top-tier contenders, are on the road against at least decent, you know, in the case of Syracuse, a pretty good team, but in Miami, a, at least a decent team. And Notre Dame, a, another decent team that sometimes gives North Carolina fits. Um, I just think it's really interesting that the that the the start of the ACC season is literally the start of the season. We're going to get to know something about these teams very very early on. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Uh, I, don't like I, I feel like <laughs> I feel weird. like at the end of the season. Well, it, it, it's it's an interesting wrinkle because at the end of the season every year, there's a lot of discussion about you know where should teams be seated in the NCAA tournament? How much do the results in November affect you know? predictive result like how much do those lead into predictions about who teams are going to be in march and it's always a weird conversation because you sort of play one set of teams early which can include some good games right duke always plays in the in the champions classic they're going to play in one of these thanksgiving tournaments i think you know this year they're going to get to play um like georgetown or or, uh berkeley like you know big uh, texas like the you know these other big programs maybe not the very best but but they're going to get their chance against those programs you don't really get to see the the conference games early, but now if you're like, if Syracuse is playing Virginia early in the season, that is arguably as big of a, as an early season matchup as Duke and Kansas is right. Those are, those are two very prominent national programs. Virginia just won the national championship. Um, so 
so it's going to be sort of a weird new barometer on which conferences are best and, and, and who looks good early in the season. And then comparing it like, you know, if Syracuse plays Virginia in November, then they might get to play them again in February. They're going to be totally different teams. So we're going to get a much more interesting measuring stick on these teams because they're going to come back to these similar opponents much later in the season. Yeah. And, and I mean, to cap this off, I think that looking at that, I, I don't think that this is going to be something that I, I think Coach K will try to hold out as long as possible at trying to be uh, one of those teams that opens up against a conference opponent. That's a really tough ask um, for these teams. And I think a lot of te- – I don't know how long – if this is an experimental thing or if there's something that they're planning on doing, but I, I don't really like uh, just going straight, straight into it. Uh, I feel like a lot of these teams are going to want to ease into the season by playing some of these uh, you know, lesser-tier teams – because they want to see what their team could do, figure out their assignments, figure out their rotations, and kind of see who they can trust. Uh, this is a big ask, and so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out and the type of play that we see uh, come November 5th and 6th when these teams start playing. Okay, guys, there was other basketball-related news this week, and Donald, this is your specialty we got a peek at the new Duke uniforms. Looks like the black is gone. Well, the black isn't gone, um, but let's talk about them. They, they've broken it down into three. We've seen a glimpse of the home jersey. And if you're thinking when, when the team rolls out on the court uh, for Countdown to Crazes, you're thinking that you're watching the 99 team, uh, it's because they're going to look like them. Um, the, the jerseys harken back to what we – uh, saw from Duke in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. Um, they, you know, they've gotten rid of the. Uh, it's in, unclear if they've gotten rid of the throwbacks, but they've taken uh, what we had in the 90s with the black or with the blue uh, side panels uh, on the shirt and the and the shorts, uh, and they have reinstituted that. So it's white um, with blue side panels on the home jersey. On the back is interesting because they have a little gold uh, little tag on the top of the neck. Uh, and it looks just like if you've ever seen uh, the jerseys from the NBA the last few years, they have those with uh, with the with the titles on the back. Ours says Duke on it, and I think that's a nice little. Uh, wait, wait, do you, do you know the reason for that? Have you heard? I don't know the reason why they put it on the Duke jersey. Go so, ahead. so, so get this. So Nike, um, uh, in unveiling the new uniforms for this year, there was they put like a silver tab if a team has been to a final four as a Nike school and a gold tab, if you have won a national title as a Nike school. Now, okay. The, so Duke should have like three, four or five gold tabs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but Duke was, Duke was Adidas during that, during that first set of national championships. Okay. Right? So, uh, so yeah. three, mm-hmm. Jason, this is, this is from your time, not mine. As I recall, yeah. the way the story goes is that Christian Leitner picked Duke because it was an Adidas school back, back in the eighties. Right? Mm-hmm. Were you even born then? No, but I, <laughs> but I, but I've read about this. Yes. Yeah. No, you're, that's you're true. right. And so, also- so Duke should have three gold tabs. But the bottom line, they, they just do one gold. But bottom line is, you'll be able to look at uniforms throughout the season and see which programs have been really successful for Nike. And having the gold tab is a big deal. Donald, I apologize. I interrupted you. Continue. No, no, and, and that's a good point because that is what it's supposed to be on the NBA jerseys. That it's it, it has a number for the number of NBA titles that that particular team has won. So even if they win another one, they just change the number on that. So it's, it's a cool little, you know, gesture to kind of bring that to the college game. And again, see who these, you know, elite programs are. 
so they're doing that on the on the away jersey, the road jersey. It's supposed to be the opposite, blue with the white panels, white uh, blue shorts, white panels on the shorts. Uh, and, and I think this is the crisp look. They have said that they will have a black alternate. It's just unclear as to what that black alternate will look like, um, if it's going to tie into the template that they're using this year or if it's going to be the same one that they used last year. It's also unclear if they're going to throw the faux-backs uh, that we've seen in uh, previous years kind of back into the rotation. Uh, along with that 2015 uh, uh, Hyper Elite jersey that we've worn on occasion since then because we won the national titles in them. Uh, so it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see what that is. But the traditional home jerseys that we know of are gone in its place are these throwbacks to the 1990, uh, early 2000s era. And I, for one, like them. I think it was it was our cleanest look. Uh, and, and I really enjoyed uh, – I mean, that was when I was in school. So, of course, I have a affinity to – what I was watching when I was in Cameron as a Cameron crazy, as a student. Uh, so I think it's going to be cool to have that look back on the court again. Uh, Sam, I, what do you think about it? I think they are so hot. Yeah. They're awesome. Like I, I, I think when you, when you picture um, classic Duke bat, like, like the best looking version of Duke basketball, mm-hmm. it's Duke basketball from the late nineties. It's like yeah. Elton brand. It's Shane Battier. Um, those are the dudes who are sort of the most iconic looking Duke players to me and I am I love the jerseys I think that the um the slits in the in the shorts at the bottom of the short are a little weird but I think it's sort of a it's a um, that's the thing nowadays that's a whole that's thing. It, yeah well, well the the problem is that the the shorts now are, are so like form-fitting that you need a little bit more space to move around in them so mm-hmm. to keep them athletic I guess they have to they have to have that but um I think that the the, the the paneling and especially the the paneling at the on the waistband um, with the with the D logo right in the middle looks mm-hmm. really excellent. So and, I'm, I'm I'm all for this change. And I always look at one reaction that's really the most important the reaction of the players, and they all seem to love it. And if you look good, you feel good, you're going to play good. And these guys, you know, they were the video that they showed of them seeing the jerseys for the first time and trying it on. I, I thought they they looked like they were having a blast. And it, I think that's cool too, because as you know, someone who watched that team in college is cool. And these guys are, you know, those guys probably don't remember, you know, Elton Brand and, and Shane Battier. They no, probably weren't. Donald, Donald, those guys weren't alive yet. Right. So, so <laughs> oh my the fact God. that they are, they, but even like the early 2000s, all the way up to Little Ding, it's probably when these guys around were born. So uh, the fact that they are, you know, looking at what is an old look for, for many fans. And embracing it like that, that that makes me feel good about it. So the the two thousand one title team was was the year these guys that the freshmen were born, roughly. Okay, so, so they definitely yeah. don't remember Shane Battier being in college. Right. Um, they might they might remember JJ Redick. Um, maybe, yeah. No, I doubt, the first. I doubt it. I doubt mean, um, it. Well, they might have been like you know five years old, like five, um, yeah, four or five, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and they probably thought Nolan Smith was really really cool. <laughs> before before he started recruiting them and became you know their, their became, their, uh, became one of their coaches yeah sure i like it I, I have nothing to add on the jerseys although the only thing i'll say is if it brings up any memories of 1999 that is a good thing because the 1990 team 1999 team absolutely eight worlds they destroyed everyone that they played i it's, yeah I, I was gonna say that i was in i was in cameron the other day um during the camp out um went to the 
uh, Duke women's volleyball game on Saturday afternoon. And I was walking around upstairs in the stadium with a couple of my friends. And you know how they have um, they have all these old pictures of all the all these old players. And yeah, yeah. we happened to be like standing. We were like waiting for one of my friends to go to the bathroom. And we were standing in front of a picture of Mike Dunleavy hitting one of those three pointers against Arizona. And I proceeded to give like a six minute history lesson on the 2001 team and i was like i like i i really would like to just keep talking about them so you know whenever you feel like you've gotten enough um we'll stop but i was like oh and there's there's carlos boozer and he broke his foot and and all that all that kind of stuff so i was love having the, yeah, yeah reggie love was on that team and like he's famous oh, for four. like totally oh, different reasons so right The DPR podcast wants to thank our fine longtime sponsors, the guys from Bird Campbell, a pair of former Dukies who are now uh, uh, lawyers in Texas and Florida. But by the way, folks, I mentioned that uh, that we could see each other. Donald and Sam are making faces at me as I do my Bird Campbell promo. Guys, this is hard enough. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> you're the you're the media guy. <laughs> I know, and, and I'm failing miserably, but this is about thanking them. Um, if you have legal needs in the states of Texas or Florida, we urge you to reach out to them at B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com, birdcampbell.com. They mean business. By the way, there was also football going on since we've uh, since we last spoke to you folks. Duke had a, a pair of games against North Carolina A and T uh, and Middle Tennessee, Middle Tennessee State, or are they just Middle Tennessee? I think they're just Middle Tennessee. No, they're Middle, Middle Tennessee, Tennessee State. State. Okay. Yep. The Blue Raiders of Middle Tennessee State. Uh, Donald Wine, um, what were your thoughts on these games? A couple easy victories for Duke. We weren't sure they'd be easy victories. These are these are two fairly well respected smaller college teams. I, I think everyone knew Duke had more talent and that Duke was likely to win. I don't know that people thought that the games would be as lopsided as they were. Yeah. And you know what? I'll say A&T showed out for like the first quarter and a half. They were, they were up at one point and all of a sudden people were like, Oh, this team might be pretty good. Uh, and then we, we started taking care of business in that game. And then also against middle Tennessee state uh, the other night, which was uh, to my knowledge, the first game that was exclusive on a Facebook page, um, but which was kind of interesting to watch that game and kind of take it in. But uh, yeah, I, I think the one thing that I, I will take from this and I'll pass it to you guys is uh, I thought Quentin Harris played very well in both games. Uh, I thought he was very good on his feet. He was good finding guys in the air. Uh, he made good decisions with the ball. Uh, and really that was why we were able to put so many points on the board in both games. We're going to need that uh, from the quarterback position, you know, the, the whole season. But uh, to get that, you know, momentum back, especially after, uh, especially after uh, the game against Alabama, um, where it was just, you know, a learning experience for everybody, uh, I think was a great, great thing. So uh, hats off to, you know, Quentin Harris. I thought he played pretty well uh, throughout both games. And I thought he was the guy that kind of paced us uh, throughout it all. I'm so, I'm really glad you brought him up because, I'll be honest, after the Alabama game, there were a lot of questions about Quentin Harris. Um, you know, Duke really, really struggled to complete passes against Alabama. It looked like the offense um, admitted that we were putting in a new, you know, uh, triple option, or whatever you want to call it, kind of offense that, that we haven't run in the past. But boy, it looked like we didn't want to throw the ball very much. 
for Quentin Harris to bounce back from that, admittedly against teams that are overmatched to some extent, but for him to throw four touchdowns in each one of those games, eight TD passes over two games is really impressive. His completion percentage, his accuracy, you know, I saw this guy play last year. It really feels like he has improved um, perhaps even significantly over, over what we, we saw from him a a year ago. And uh, I'll tell you the other thing that surprised me a little bit, uh, it feels like Duke has discovered some, some new wide receiving options. Uh, Jalen Calhoun, um, who is a true freshman, had a pair of really good games. Um, he's catching lots of uh, uh, touchdown passes, um, and, uh, and, and he looks like he's one of Quentin Harris's favorite targets. Uh, you know, the senior Quentin Harris is hooking up with this brand-new freshman, Jalen Calhoun. He was not a guy who was super highly touted um, coming out of high school, but uh, he has almost immediately elevated himself into being one of the most important receivers we have on this team. And, uh, you know, I love it when the young guys play really well. Um, and, you know, I want to point out this Middle Tennessee team that we beat 41 to 18. This is not a bad team. Um, they they played a very, very competitive game with Michigan um, uh, just a week or two ago. Uh, it was like 24-14 at the half, which is competitive. They, they did not get blown out. They, uh, Duke beat Middle Tennessee worse than Michigan beat Middle Tennessee. And the other thing about the game was, and I love that Duke did this, we played this game on the road. We, we, we have Middle Tennessee for a home and home. Um, I love that Coach Cut is giving a smaller team like this, a team from a smaller conference, a chance to host a Power 5 conference team. Duke, usually these kind of games are always at your stadium. And, and I like that Duke took on the challenge of going to someone else's place um, to play this game. Uh, and, you know, and I really like the fact that we jumped out to, <clears throat> to a huge early lead it was 31 to three at halftime. So the home crowd never got to sort of elevate Middle Tennessee, elevate the Blue Raiders um, and give them much of a home field advantage. But, but I like that Duke went ahead and, uh, and, and, and tried uh, to, to play a, a true road game. And they should be praised for, for doing that in these games. And two big wins for, for the Blue Devils, um, two comfortable wins, which is always nice early in the season. And, on top of that, Donald, I think you mentioned it, but we talked after the Alabama game that we're sort of curious to see what happens in these next two games um, heading into that first bye um, prior to Virginia Tech. And I think we agreed that the, the first this first three games of the season, the goal was to go two and one, and Duke did that. Um, and did it pretty, con- I think, more convincingly, Jason, as, as you mentioned, more convincingly than we expected them to. Um, I didn't unfortunately get to watch the the game last night because of the camp out, um, but was sort of following along and was pleasantly surprised that that Duke sort of jumped out to the lead and didn't let um, didn't let Middle Tennessee get close. Um, really speaks to the uh, surprising maturity of this team, as you point out, led by Quentin Harris in his super senior season, although his first one um, at the you know in, in the starting quarterback position. Okay, as Sam was mentioning just a couple seconds ago, Duke's next game is against Virginia Tech. We step up in quality a little bit um, from uh, from Middle Tennessee and NC A&T, and uh, we will be facing the Hokies, um, who who are struggling a bit so far. Their season is not going as well as they had hoped. Historically, you'd go Duke and Virginia Tech playing at Virginia Tech. Oh my gosh, you know Duke's probably going to be a big underdog. I got news for you, people. We're probably going to be a favorite in this game. 
Donald, what you got on uh, a preview for uh, for Virginia Tech? What have they been going through this year? Uh, like you said, they have been struggling off the bat. I mean, the first game of the year for them, uh, they lost to Boston College and uh, have since come back. They're now two and one, uh, but they were less than impressive efforts uh, victories over Old Dominion and Furman, uh, including last weekend uh, or this past weekend. Furman uh, it was a 24-17 game where I mean Furman had chances to tie and win um, down the stretch. So it, I, I would say that Virginia Tech probably wants to win those games pretty easily. But if they're having their their so-called cupcakes um, having, you know, games that they have to fight for all the way to the finish. It doesn't speak highly about their effort so far this year, but like us, they do have a bye this weekend. So they have two weeks to prepare for this game, which is Friday night. It's a televised game, nationally televised game on ESPN. uh, And is that game that we have been slated slotted into the first, the last few years, either against Virginia tech or Miami. Uh, So this is a big game for us. And even though Virginia tech is, struggling so far this year they're going to come out and on all cylinders firing in front of that home crowd at lane stadium so uh right now their their offense goes through ryan willis he so far has been pretty inconsistent this year uh he has seven touchdowns but he has four interceptions and guys are getting to him as well he's been sacked seven times on the year uh, their ground game is going to go through Kashawn king and Deshaun mcleese they're going to get the bulk of the carries but willis is also going to try and put it on the ground let me tell you guys he is not good at running the football, but he is going to try and do that kind of to keep the defenses honest so that he can throw the ball down the field. When he throws the ball down the field, we have Tavion Robinson and Trey Turner. Those are the main targets along with Hezekiah Grimsley. Uh, so far, they've been pretty good on the year. They have some catches, but really Virginia Tech has had a problem moving the football down the field at will. Uh, and on defense, they're not going to force a lot of turnovers. Right now, they only have two interceptions, and they've forced one fumble. Uh, this is really where the the, the cups of this. Like, of course, we, we know about Beamer Ball. We know about their special teams. It's always going to be on point. Uh, but if their defense can't, you know, get off the field, then, you know, they're going to allow some points, and they've been doing that so far this year. So what does Duke have to do? Get past their linebackers into space. Their linebackers are their only clogs that they have in their defense, and they've been doing – the ones that have been doing the best. But once they get to their secondary, their secondary has not been playing that well. Uh, and so I think that is the key on offense and on defense. It's really about getting off to getting off the field, getting, you know, keeping the Hokies out of it and really keeping that home crowd, you know, somewhat subdued uh, and, and taking away any momentum. So this is a very winnable game for Duke. And usually you don't say that about any team traveling to Blacksburg. Uh, but this is a very winnable game for Duke. If they can play the way that they've been playing the last couple of weeks without any mistakes, they're going to walk out of Lane Stadium with a victory in their pocket. I will say there's an interesting scheduling quirk here, which is that both Duke and Virginia Tech are getting early bye games before this Friday night tilt. So it's not like uh, I, I think when you initially look at a schedule and say, oh, Friday night game, you know, weird Short schedules turnaround. for yeah. the teams that week. Mm-hmm. But um, for both of these teams, actually, it works out really nicely where they're going to get the that extra week um, tacked on to the short week. So I'm not exactly sure how the team manages the the schedule that way, but um, expect both teams to be rested. The question is, where's both of their focuses? Um, Virginia Tech had to this point, as Donald said, has been underwhelming relative to expectations. They were losing at halftime to Furman this week before, before turning things around. And, um, you know, I, I think they figured out how to 
make their existing game plan work as opposed to scrapping everything and starting over. But they're going to be focused on fixing those mistakes, whereas Duke is going to be looking at building on the success of the last couple of weeks. So uh, interesting to see where each team's uh, heads are at uh, at the beginning of this game next week. So uh, I'll give you just one or two really, really quick things. First of all, one thing I've noticed from Virginia Tech is they're really trying to find ways to get the ball to their game breaker, Trey Turner. Um, Donald already mentioned he's one of their top wide receiver ta- um, uh, targets, um, but uh, they, they've been using him a lot like in end arounds and, and sort of screen, bubble screen kind of stuff um, to get him the ball as much as they can. Duke's going to need to key on him and not let him um, make big explosive kind of plays. And then uh, the other thing that's sort of uh, surprising, I mentioned, you know, oh, Duke's probably a favorite in this game. Folks, I, I urge you, go go like look at the, you know, the football power index from ESPN. Look at Sagarin ratings and things like that. Um, I, I wasn't kidding. Virginia Tech is not highly regarded by any of the computer models right now. Their results have been very unimpressive. Um, the Sagarin rankings say even though this game is at Virginia Tech, Jeff Sagarin's computer says that Duke should be about a four-point favorite. So, wow. I mean, really surprising. That, that we are seen as that much better than Virginia Tech. But, I mean, that's sort of where we are at this moment in the season, and I hope the team lives up to to at least what the computers think about our expectations should be. Well, welcome to Duke being a favorite in a football game in Blacksburg. It's, <laughs> it's, man, there are a lot of weird things about the future, but this is this is right up there at the top of that list. Flying cars are coming soon. <laughs> And it's time for our parting shots, and I will begin with Sam Klein. Sam, what you got for me? So I mentioned at the top, this was the deep tease, was about uh, me being being in attendance at Duke grad student camp out this weekend. If you all remember back a year ago, we were supposed to have grad student camp. So grad student camp out for people who didn't, you know, go to Duke or never experienced this. Um, The undergrads tent for six to eight weeks for Carolina tickets. Graduate students tent for or sleep out for one weekend to get season tickets in September for some reason. Um, So if you did undergraduate tenting, you know that for the most part, it's rather cold. Um, Graduate student camping is rather hot because uh, that's what it's like in September in Durham. So uh, last year, we didn't have grad student camp out because we had uh, the hurricane that tore through the Southeast. And so they canceled the camp out. This year, we had the camp out. So I was uh, on the lawn in Krzyzewskiville all weekend, or at least all but a, a few hours of it when I was allowed to go home and take a shower. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, had a lot of friends out there. Everyone was uh, was practicing lots of safe, um, responsible partying. So that was uh, that was really fun. And uh, they one of the highlights is that they brought the basketball team out on Saturday afternoon to say hi to all the campers. So um, players sort of came out onto the um, onto the sort of landing area above the or below the Schwartz Butters building above the, the entrance to the undergraduate area of Cameron. And they came out and waved and they, and some of them uh, gave speeches. Trey Jones spoke a little bit. Jack White spoke, uh, Javin Delorier spoke and Trey Jones led the, um, all the grad students in the let's go Duke cheer. And at least from my interpretation, he looked genuinely excited to be, uh, to be leading the cheer in front of in front of all the grad students who are all a lot older than he is. Um, and the other fun thing is that 
you got, you know, I think we've talked about this, that Justin Robinson is a graduate student now at Duke. And um, he was out there like hanging out at grad student camp out this weekend. Um, I don't know if he, if he had entered his name into the lottery for the tickets, I'm not sure that he needs them, but I think he has a good uh, seat already. He's got a really he, good seat. Yeah. I think he has a ticket already for the games this year, but you know, um, you never know what's going to, what's going to fall through on that front. But uh, yeah, he's he was got family. He's got family. Yeah, exactly. So I, I commented to some friends. I was like, you know, it's uh, it's one thing for, for the athletes to like stick around for the extra year and go into a graduate school program, but like still maintain, you know, whatever their social lives are relative to the team. Uh, it appears that Justin Robinson is really just embracing being a graduate student. Um, so he's, he's a real, he's a real grizzled veteran, um, and just goes and hangs out at grad student camp out. So that was, uh, it was pretty fun all around, had a good time. Didn't get a ton of sleep. Um, cause I was sleeping in the tent on the lawn in Kayville. Um, but, uh, but, but lots of fun and, uh, I'll recover in short order uh, and be totally back to normal. Has there ever been a Justin Robinson story that wasn't just a great story? That kid. I love that he, kid. He seems great. Uh, in all of our interactions with him, um, seems like we, our first, the first player we ever interviewed, right, on the DBR podcast, yeah. yes. mm-hmm. um, wasn't a Duke player yet. I, we we interviewed him he as he was committed. a freshly committed preferred walk-on, uh, right. or freshly admitted preferred walk-on, or, or something to that effect. But um, so, podcast favorite Justin Robinson. Absolutely, absolutely, Donald. What's your uh, what's your parting shot? Okay, so my parting shot is is kind of random, so bear with me. Um, so it starts off with this week. I, as you guys know, I do a lot of traveling, and uh, this week my travels will take me to Munich uh, to go to Oktoberfest, which uh, is one of those bucket list moments for me, and I'm really looking forward to the trip. And so when I'm in some of these places that I'm going for vacation, when it's not you know for a specific thing like soccer or something like that, I try to find. So, or you know, sporting events to attend while I'm there uh, to kind of get a glimpse of how sporting life is in other places. And so I was checking around and and I was you know getting tickets to uh, Bayern Munich, who their soccer team plays uh, while we're there. So me and a few friends are going, and I was like, I wonder if there's any other sports. And so I'm looking around and and realized that Bayern Munich has a basketball team. So I'm checking the website and I'm looking to see if they have a game. Unfortunately, they do not. But I found out one interesting thing that ties into Duke. Our friend Demarcus Nelson plays for Bayern Munich, um, which I did not know existed uh, until just now, like a few days ago. Uh, it, was, it was just complete happenstance that I just happened to check the roster. Greg Monroe also plays for them, um, which is also very random. Uh, but yes, Demarcus Nelson, uh, class of 08, I want to say, um, is a Bayern Munich player and is playing. He's still playing in Europe. He is listed as a Serbian national uh, because he got Serbian citizenship and apparently uh, has played for their national team at some point. So he's not listed as an American. Um, Wait, what? As a, really? Isn't Demarcus yeah. Nelson like from Oakland or something? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this happens a lot in basketball. He's when, Serbian now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they, there's a lot of teams who are like, hey, um, by the way, you're never going to make Team USA. So why don't you play for us? Um, and they give them citizenship and then they end up playing on a national team elsewhere. Um, and it's usually after they've played a few years in uh, that particular country's domestic league, which I believe Demarcus Nelson did. Uh, so, yes, he is he is a Serbian American basketball player that plays for Bayern Munich, our very own Demarcus Nelson. Demarcus Nelson and I were in one lecture class together, one not like the full term. He 
he sat in one of my classes like the first week of the term, my first semester freshman year, and then he wasn't in the class anymore. Um, we we otherwise Wait, did he had, drop it or did he not show up? I I assume he dropped. Um, it would be I mean like that'd be that'd be pretty poor form if he went right, to one yeah. lecture and that was it. Yeah. It was history of jazz, um, which uh, I think is like a famous with uh, Paul Jeffrey. No, uh, different professor whose oh, okay. whose name I won't mention because I didn't like him. Um, yeah, I had but, Paul uh, Jeffrey. I had the best. It was amazing. <laughs> and it wasn't with John Brown, who's like the famous professor who teaches it. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, but Demarcus Nelson was in my was in my class. He made it to one lecture, and then um, and that was it. So I assume that he he dropped it and took something else. Interesting. They, yes, they I will try have... to see if I can find Demarcus while I'm at Oktoberfest. Uh, I said before this, Sam, before you logged on, uh, Jason said that we should try to interview him, and I told him that I guarantee you that I will be in no state to interview anybody while I'm in Munich. Look, we've done worse. Yeah. Oktoberfest <laughs> interviews are the best. <laughs> it's, what I, it's what I've been told. I'm not going to. I'm not going to test that. Theory if we week. can get, wait, when is this? Is next week? This is this week. This is. The, I was going to say, if we can get, man, if we can get to Marcus Nelson for the season preview show and do the stats game with him, I feel like that's going to be that's going to be content that I'll do that some digging. I'll do. Some, the I, listeners I, I really want, digging, but I'll do some digging. <laughs> Well, I, I find it interesting. Um, it, we talked earlier about the deep tease. Now we're going to get to the segue because uh, Donald mentioned the Serbian national team. My parting shot is about the U.S. national team and the FIBA World Cup. And folks, if you have been reading the DBR boards, you know that I have been one of the most frequent posters on um, Team USA and the FIBA World Cup. I watched all the Americans games. I watched a lot of other teams games. I don't know why I love international basketball so much. It's not, it's not nearly as elegant as, uh, as NBA basketball, but I, I don't know. I just, I just really like it's it. I, 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 yeah. I, I, love, there. I love the notion of people playing for their home country and, and really valuing that a lot. I mean, like, look, Argentina, Argentina made the finals and they made the finals because Luis, Luis Scola, who is 49 years old or 67 or something like that. He was in the NBA before Sam went to Duke, I think. Luis Scola. Yeah, he definitely was. Yeah, Luis Scola <laughs> was like the man for Argentina. Like he scored like 30 something points in one of their games, even though he he's basically getting AARP benefits at this point because he loves to play for his country, for Argentina. But but I don't want to talk about Argentina. I want to talk about Team USA that lost consecutive games. They lost in the quarterfinals to France and Rudy Gobert. And then they turned around and they lost the game. They were playing to hopefully finish in fifth place. Like the U.S. had to win games to finish in fifth place. But we didn't. We played Serbia, who is a really, really good team. There's a reason DeMarcus Nelson is not on the Serbian national team. It's because the Serbian national team is full of NBA players. They are really, really good. So we played Serbia. We also lost that game. So Team USA finished seventh. But they beat Poland to finish seventh in the FIBA World Cup. All right. Rash. Here it comes. I'm, I am pissed. I am angry that that so many guys chose not to play for this team i'm angry at the way team usa set up their practice schedule and everything else that they didn't have time for this team to gel together i i for i, I think it says great things about coach k that he freaking never lost he, he lost one game at the very 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 beginning but he certainly didn't have the number of losses that Greg coach k over the span of a decade 
lost once. Greg Popovich lost three times in one month. Everyone talks about Greg Popovich, one of the greatest coaches of the game, all this other kind of stuff. And I'm not going to say he's not. He absolutely is one of the great coaches in basketball history. But he sucked this past month. He did a terrible, terrible job. The, the U.S. game against France, um, uh, Donovan Mitchell was dominating in the third quarter. USA took the lead because Donovan Mitchell was taking over that game. And Pops benched him in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter for some reason. I have no idea why. He wasn't running sets to get him the ball. He kept on running plays to get Kemba Walker shots. And Kemba Walker was like one of nine at that point. I'm I'm mad at the players who chose not to play for Team USA. I'm mad at Jerry Colangelo and Team USA for not taking this seriously, for not giving them enough uh, practice time and everything like that. I'm mad at Pops, who I think did not do a good job of preparing the team. Everyone says Coach K had this easy job. Oh, he's taking NBA stars, and they're winning titles, and, and it's a big recruiting advantage for Duke. Well, guess what? Now we see it wasn't as easy as Coach K made it look. There's a reason Coach K is the GOAT. And he's shown he's the GOAT, not just in college basketball, but in all of basketball by what he's done, um, uh, uh, you know, with the FIBA teams, uh, with the national teams in the past. And uh, the last thing I'll say about all this is next summer, LeBron James and uh, and all these other guys are going to show up and say, yeah, I'm ready to play for the Olympics now. I, I wasn't ready to play for Team USA when it was time to, to play uh, in, in the World Cup, but but I want to play for the Olympics because that's what I care about. And so, you know, you're going to see LeBron James. You're going to see Paul George. You're going to, you know, uh, Kyrie Irving, Pardon. all these other guys, Kawhi Leonard, who are going to say, okay, I- I'm ready to play now. Uh, some of them should be told no. Uh, you know, uh, like uh, not not the best guys because we, we need to. But Tobias Harris, Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal. You guys show up, Kevin Love, CJ McCollum, you guys show up and say, yeah, I'm ready to play. They should say, no, thanks. Goodbye. And they should take Donovan Mitchell. They should take Jason Tatum. They should take the guys who actually went out there and tried and did their best to win this summer. You don't get a free pass to the Olympic team next summer, you know, because you skipped this summer. I'm I'm mad. I'm mad because the U.S. did not send our best team. and And it pisses me off. You know, in the beginning of the Coach K tenure, there was a little bit of that. Um, you have to play all the tournaments to sort of be eligible for the Olympic team. Um, yeah, they had this. They had this cycle that they were on. You yeah, played the, the three World cycles, Cup and then yeah. you played. Yeah, uh, and so you and, had to, and then and then it kind of transitioned later in in the Coach K tenure, where it was like. Um, if you like, he, he would let sort of the top, top guys go like LeBron didn't have to play or something. Um, but the next tier down of guys, like the guys who would be, um, the, the First end cut. of the bench, yeah. um, mm-hmm. or the, or the, yeah. So if there are 12 guys on the team, the guys who were like eight through maybe 20, uh, would be expected to be on the world championships team. Um, and that sort of became the, the new model so that, so that there was a little bit more of a feeder system and they didn't have to make the senior, senior guys, play every summer um but it seems like this year it wasn't even that group that was in there jason tatum is not uh you know as, as good as he is he's not in that top 12 15 group um he's probably a little lower than that and it's and it seems like a lot of the guys who were sort of in that middle range um didn't come um and that popovich isn't really uh, doesn't really seem to care about that or, or or jerry colangelo doesn't care about that so i don't know where the Oh no, Jerry um, Colangelo cares. Did you hear Jerry Colangelo's comments after? No. After we lost to to yeah, Serbia, I did. the whole thing was over. What did he say? Colangelo, Colangelo was like, "Let's be real clear." <laughs> he's he, like, "I'm he, not going to forget." He, yeah, he said, "We're going to remember the guys that were there this summer 
when guys want to play on the Olympic team next summer. So I, I, I sort of feel like I agree with you, Sam. Look, if you're someone who's played for the national team a lot in the past, if you're someone who's a little more of a veteran, LeBron James, if he wants to play, is going to play. And I've got no problem with that. That's why I picked yeah. out some of those guys, you know, again, like Damian Lillard, um, uh, Kevin Love, although Love's been around for a while and he has played on some of the teams. But uh, but, but LeBron, Russell Westbrook, um, Kevin Durant, these guys can just kind of step in um, if, if they feel like they want to be part of it. Yeah, look, uh, look, Draymond, look, Draymond Green is a great example. Draymond Green would be great at the international game. He didn't bother to play. Blake Griffin, uh, you, you, this team needed big men. We needed big men in a, in a big, big way. Um, the U.S. lost to France because uh, Rudy Gobert absolutely dominated the game um, in the paint. And, and in fact, our big men were so bad. No offense to Mason Plumley, who was one of them. Our big men were so bad that the entire second half, we basically played with like, we, like Harrison Barnes was guarding Rudy, Rudy Gobert a lot of the time. Shockingly, Pops, Harrison Barnes is unable to stop Rudy Gobert in the post. I, I know that comes as a surprise that an NBA small forward can't stop one of the best centers in the league. But uh, it, it was it was a big problem not having big men. So the big men are the guys that I'm really pissed off about, along with a guy like Damian Lillard, who whose shooting would have helped because this team was not a great outside shooting team. So I think the what I'm upset about is not necessarily – yes, there's the list of people who – who declined the opportunity to play, we'll say. But there's also, you know, there's when Coach K did it, there was a commitment. It didn't necessarily have to play on the team, but a lot of these guys, they're like, hey, show up at camp. And sometimes they would, you would see LeBron James and James Harden and Russell Westbrook show up to camp, and Coach K would be like, hey, thanks for showing up. You're not, you're not needed this summer, but commitment noted. You're good. We in here, go on home and rest. And But everyone was on the same page. I feel like with this team, one, Nobody was on the same page. This team was constructed, and usually, like, there should be a balance. There should be guys that can shoot. There should be guys that can rebound. There should be guys that can play defense. There should be guys that can dribble the ball. There should be guys that can create shot. And really, what happened against France is that we we realized that we had a roster of guys who only thing they were able to do is give the ball to Kemba Walker and hope that Kemba Walker could go around Rudy Gobert. And Rudy Gobert was like laughing for the entire second half because he's like, "This is." This is your. This is what you're trying to do to beat us. I'm going to throw this ball every single time, and that's what he was doing. Miles Turner had a terrible, terrible go of it for even like in the in the beginning. Oh, not as bad uh, as Brook Lopez. Lopez was yeah, really and Brook awesome. Lopez was so bad that he barely played. Um, and I think the at the in the end of it, I mean, it was a joke that when he was checking the game, other teams were like trying to like you know mock cheer for Brooke Lopez to enter the game like you would for Rudy. And, and I think when it comes to that, like next year, the commitment has to be there. And it, it, honestly, it's it's cool. You know, like you said, there's going to be some guys that should have taken this opportunity that could have benefited from it. And it would have helped Team USA. And they didn't. Those are the people we need to be worried about that next year they're going to show up saying, hey, coach, we ready. I'm ready to go in. This by, by the way, I want to have be a better approach to it next year. And that commitment isn't there, but also the organization isn't there from top to bottom. And Colangelo, he understands that and he knows that. I just don't think Pop did. And that's very unlike Pop because the San Antonio Spurs are literally what they build their team is the way that Team USA wants to play. And they he wasn't able to do that for some reason with the players that he brought. 
I want to be real clear about something. Team USA, the best team that we could send to the world championships included not one, not two, but at least three players who do not start for their NBA team. Mason Plumley, Derek White, and Marcus Smart are not starters for their teams. Also, that, they sent half the Boston Celtics, which in my mind, we already were, we already were behind the eight ball. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, think about that. That's crazy. Like, we couldn't find a team that even had, that was even full of NBA starters. I don't get it. I, I don't get and And I just thought that, to me, the team construction, you know, you mentioned this. The team construction was just really bad. We did not have big men who who were the right kind of big men. Um, we didn't have enough shooting from the outside. Joe Harris is supposed to be a great shooter. I don't know what happened. Chris but, Milton I mean, didn't have a good get, good uh, go of it either. And he and he like emerged this past year, but over the course of the summer, it just seemed like hit whatever he was had during the regular season, it, it left him. He didn't have the, the legs to kind of shoot the way he normally does, and that really showed because when he can't shoot. There's not much else that he's on the court for. Well, and if and and he was on a team that had a good playoff run, so mm-hmm. you can sort of see how the the scheduling might sort of work against Team USA if you've got all these guys playing prominent roles who had who played deep into you know end of May or into June uh, yeah. this summer. So the Olympics are next year are like late July into early August. So that actually is a little bit earlier than. Uh, than this was because obviously the the World Cup of basketball started at the you know August thirty first, and so I think that might play into it. But also what that means is there's going to be guys who are not going to have a lot of break between the end of the playoffs and the start of training camp for the Olympics. So we'll definitely be, see we'll definitely mm-hmm. see players who are like prominent should be on the Olympic team type players who play either in the finals or in the conference finals who will opt out because the schedule just isn't going to work for them. Right. Right. And I think that the, the good thing is the other teams, like honestly, um, I mean, since the Pistons are going to make the first round and probably lose to the bucks again, um, that means Blake Griffin will be well-rested and ready to play. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so, I mean, there's going to be those sort of things, uh, Sam, like you said, but it's going to be interesting because I feel like the commitment to USA basketball is not going to start at the end of the playoffs. It's going to have to start right now. And people are going to have to say, if I want to be a part of team USA for this, for this Olympics, then this schedule, it, we already know what it is. So we need to plan around it and we need to start working on it right now. And I think that's what USA basketball needs to be doing. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm frustrated about it. I think it's a real pity that um, the team USA didn't have a better showing. I don't really blame the players. It's not their fault. They did their best. They were what they were. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope that this causes USA basketball to take a renewed look at how they're going to structure things going forward in the future. I don't want us only to, to consider the Olympics to be a big deal. I think that the FIBA World Cup is a big deal. And um, anyway... We're all in complete agreement about that. And that is going to wrap it up for us on 165 of the DBR podcast. I got the number right for Sam Klein and Donald Wine. I am Jason Evans. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again to our sponsor, Bird Campbell, the fine gentleman who sponsors us every time here on the DBR podcast. I want to remind everybody, if you want to reach out to us, feel free to email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. And you can always find us on the Duke Basketball Report bulletin boards. Until next time, have a good time, and Duke Band, 
Take it away.